Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Mandy Smith, originally from Australia. She's lead pastor of University Christian Church, a campus and neighborhood congregation with its own fair trade cafe in Cincinnati, Ohio. She's also the author of several books, most recently The Vulnerable Pastor, and she's a friend. I give you Mandy Smith. Mandy, welcome back to the podcast. It's always good to be with you, Scott. And I'm actually with you. I'm literally with you today. It's funny when we say literally. 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 You do mean literally. Sometimes when we say literally, we mean figuratively. My hair is literally on fire, which means, yeah, I don't like that. No, I do mean literally. And we are in the lobby of the best Western hotel in downtown Philadelphia. Yes, we are. You are in my hood, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And yeah, it's so, this is like rare that I ever record this podcast with somebody in person. So this is really fun. I know, it's a treat. And you're here for the Praxis Gathering? Yes. And you're It's happening today. Yes, tomorrow and Saturday. Yeah, I hopefully we'll get to one of your talks. Yeah. And yeah, so let's talk. Speaking of talk, let's talk lecture. So by the way, we have the news in the background. We're at the hotel bar slash lobby. So this is, if you hear the ambiance, that is what you hear. (laughs) This is actually a weird day for the country, too, because it's like the whole Brett Kavanaugh hearing. So that's what's... That's what's going the, on in the, the background. So. so first, our first reading is the 23rd chapter of Job, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 16 through 17. This is sort of, uh, this is a complaint. A little, Job is frustrated here. Hmm. And the lecturer seems to edit this a little bit. Like he, The 10 through 15 are some places where he actually kind of indicts God a little bit. Hmm. <laughs> Which, so they have they have an agenda here. Well, I mean, maybe or maybe not. Like, but I, liturgically, sometimes there are things that are awkward to explain. But as mm. the preacher, I guess you got to figure out: do you contextualize it or not? Yeah. Uh, but here we have, you know, the God's Job is complaining about his lot in life, which you know seems to his mind and heart unjust. And you know, here this is not a this is not a happy passage. No, no. But I was thinking because I know the Psalm twenty two passage is in there too, which we're not going to talk about. But some of you might be preaching from it, and I often think with that, is it is it this might be heresy, but is it necessary for our idea of salvation to believe that Jesus actually was um, forsaken by by the Father? And or is that or is it a telling of Jesus' feeling of being forsaken, which then would have also been the psalmist's feeling of being forsaken, which also relates to Job's feeling of being forsaken. Um, and so I think because we often think of Scripture as being so prescriptive, we are or either that or looking to build some kind of doctrine based on every single verse. 
we forget that sometimes it's just descriptive, that we don't have to act like Job or Jesus or the psalmist crying out in those ways. And feelings, right? Like right. perceptions right. are always real, whether or not they're true. <clears throat> yes, so exactly. So a human being felt that and expressed that to God, and that is true. That is real. The best thing about the human and divine nature of Jesus I ever heard was from a seminary professor who, a New Testament scholar, who said that, you know, I think of this like your conscious mind, like your unconscious mind, like when you're dreaming or your subconscious has access to everything in your conscious mind. But your, but it doesn't work the other way around. Hmm. You know, like your conscious mind just can't call up the unconscious like mm. in the same way. And so he was sort of saying that, you know, they have these two realities in Jesus. The divinity mm. has access to all the humanity, hmm. but the humanity doesn't have access backwards. Oh, beautiful. Wow, I love that. That might be heretical, too. I'm not sure, but, you know, hey. <laughs> um, but it's beautiful to have this inside look into Job's heart and to see a human being crying out out of his deep pain. And it reminds me of the way that Barbara Brown Taylor talks about this, which I love, that she says um, there's a difference between pain and suffering and uses Job as an example to say that pain is the the obvious circumstance so he has definitely lost so many things and that is not something you could ever argue with then in addition to the pain is the suffering of not understanding what happened and why why god would let this happen to him and in some ways the suffering of that feeling of forsakenness by god is worse than the pain of these actual circumstances that he's existing in yeah and i think that the reality too of like what do you do with God in that and sometimes we have these arguments in the church in the open theists and the Calvinists and the process and the Augustine mm. the traditional non-traditional but the th- fact is like God Mother Teresa said you know she was like, she was looking forward to being in heaven because God had a lot to answer for <laughs> and I think whatever your theology is if God's just a little powerful God has a lot to answer for and yet and and yet God is God in the sense right. of, you know, and Mother Teresa also said that, we, I think it was Tom Brokaw or somebody asked her, when you pray, what do you say? Mm. She said, nothing, I listen. Mm. So well, what does God say to you? And she said, nothing, he listens. Right. So right. there's something about the, yeah. the, the, all those feelings somehow need to be, have a place in a healthy, robust right. spirituality. Yeah. I I often think that my greatest sin, I'm not like, doing a lot of the really juicy kinds of sins but in some ways mine is even worse that it's assuming I know better than God and assuming I understand the circumstances and so when I come to him in the way that Job does here I also assume that my estimation of the situation is correct and so I do wonder sometimes if the story of Job is to help us because we know behind the scenes we know what actually is going on more than Job does we know from God's perspective more than Job does. And so I wonder if it's to give us some kind of insight into our own moments that are Job kinds of moments of understanding that there is this greater thing going on that we just can't understand. And sure, it's it's beautiful to have permission to come from our limited understanding and to just beat on God's chest and say, why aren't you here? Um, I love that phrase, beat on God's 
chest. Yeah. Because we think of beating our own chest. Mm, he doesn't go anywhere. You know, sometimes yeah. you just need a parent kind of figure who you can just beat on their chest and they, they can, they can take it. Um, and somehow, I think that's what lament feels like to me is just being able to beat on God's chest. And, um, something in doing that actually helps me see the situation in a different way and see that maybe he was there all along and maybe my understanding of the circumstances that I was forsaken were actually not the reality. There's a commentator, Roland Murphy, who says that he talks about the hardness of preaching despair. He said, but despair in the context of the book of Job is a salutary despair. Job does not remain there. He moves. His despair is balanced by many contrary assertions of faith. Such a mixture reflects human reality, the continuous movement between hope and despair at various moments of life. Herein lies the fruitful material for a sermon, the fluctuation between faith and despair, between fidelity and revolt, between fervor and lukewarmness that characterizes human lives. Mm. I think there's actually a liturgical opportunity here, even if it's hard to preach on despair, there is a liturgical opportunity to to confess or lament in some way that is giving voice to despair. And what I notice often is that the more powerful we are, the less we're comfortable with going there, with opening this kind of can of worms. Um, the more that people are coming from the margins, which reminds me of this passage from Mark 10 too, that the less wealthy we are in every meaning of the word the more able we are to know the true death and resurrection story that we're a part of, that you can open that can of worms and you, it feels like an existential death to really confess everything that you think is falling apart in your life and in the world. And if Jesus' story is truly true, then we have to trust that there is that is going into darkness to come out on the other side, you know, in a new way, not just in this like, oh, we're not going to talk about that kind of way, you know, just like uh, trying to avoid doggy paddling at the top of uh, um, of a waterfall you know like just let yourself go over the waterfall and you'll come up you'll come out in this in a calmer place you'll come out in a better place but I think so many of us are just doggy paddling at the top of the waterfall trying to avoid the despair I have only one thing to do and that's be the way that I am and then sink back into the ocean I have only one thing to do and that's be the way that I am and then sink back into the ocean Speaking of the story of Jesus, let's talk Word of God in Hebrews 4, mm. verses 12 through 16. This is one of those verses that I feel like it's a bumper sticker-ish verse, right? At least huh. parts of it. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Mm. Uh, you, but there's some deep stuff here about piercing oh yeah uh, and, uh, that doesn't get communicated in the bumper sticker like, no no it's very often uh, you know it, 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 the, this the, the deeper stuff is lost like most bumper sticker verses mm. you know and here we, you have this pat, this sense that before God and his word were penetrated no one's hidden, like Job right here. Mm. We're naked, we're laid bare. And then it says, but <laughs> then we have Jesus, the great yeah. high priest. Like it Turns a corner. I mean, Calvin has this great you know, insight at the beginning of the Institute. Well, knowledge of God 
knowledge of self, it doesn't matter where I would start. Like, I'll start with knowledge of God. That seems proper. But either way, if it's mm. proper, you'll end up the same place. If you mm. really know yourself, I like that. you'll end up at God. If you really know God, you'll end up knowing yourself. But it requires this kind of tension mm-hmm. that we have in Hebrews 4, right? Yeah, yeah. I love the tension between the naked and laid bare with the boldness. So on the one hand, uh, yeah, I mean, that's an obvious tension, right? Naked versus bold. <laughs> Um, and I, I know a lot of people who are bold, but it comes out of a not knowing your nakedness. And I know a lot of people who know their nakedness, and so they're not very bold. But to both feel naked before the Lord and yet to also have the boldness is pretty wild. Um, but also, this passage is one of my favorites, actually, because it uh, when we think about living in active things and studying li- living in active things, you know, anyone who's ever set foot in a seminary classroom is going to know, you know, you, you catch the living active thing, you, you bring it into the lab, you dissect it, you put it in glass jars and you put labels on them and then you have studied that living and active thing. But, of course, you've killed it in the process. Um, but anybody who also wants to study living active things has the option to go into its natural habitat, which is a humbling thing to just sit behind a tree and camp out for months and wait for it to show itself. And when it does, to just be ready for the chase. And it's the thing that is calling the shots and is is leading the chase if we will just be up for it. And uh, I love that that choice between the two ways of pursuing this Word of God, letting it remain living and active. And then I was actually listening to this passage, which is how I often take in Scripture these days, and it was almost like this, I don't know if I was half falling asleep at the same time, but it became this almost like apoc- apocalyptic kind of vision of like, okay, I'm, I'm chasing this living active thing in its natural habitat. And then it turns and it has a scalpel and it wants to do this surgery on me. So instead of me being this, um, you know, lab technician with a scalpel doing the surgery on it, it wants to then turn and be this two-edged sword piercing to divide soul from spirit and joints from marrow to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I think somewhere in this passage too, it talks about uh, resting. And then here the naked and laid bare passage just made me think of surgery, that we let this living, active Word of God do surgery on us if we will just sit still and rest long enough to be naked and laid bare before before the work that that Word can do in us if we, if we don't kill it and let it be living and active. Um, so that's I think I think that's a really rich. So it doesn't feel like a bumper sticker at all to me. It feels like this like apocalyptic kind of a dream of this strange way of uh, keeping up with a living and active thing that also um, can do surgery. Healing may be painful, but healing surgery to remove things that are not actually helping us to become living and active. Yeah, and it, what you're saying, you know, because certain bumper stickers. They're capturing. It's like my friend and mentor Dal Gooder says. You know, he talks about gospel reductionisms. He's like they're gospel reductionisms because they're gos- There's gospel in them. Mm. Like, and I think of like a classic phrase like Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, which seems so trite when you see it right. on somebody's bumper sticker with other weird bumper stickers, or if they're cutting you off or something. But it's really true. Mm-hmm. And so is this. But it's interesting on both of those whether the the living word is a two-edged sword or the Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It's Jesus that makes them real. These stories of Jesus, uh, you know, 
forgiving people and really drawing near and doing that surgery and healing at the same time. Mm. And that's, you know, what rounds this out with the great high priest who's able yeah. to sympathize with our weaknesses, that, that people who come to Jesus and chase him and yet turn around and he's, wow, all of a sudden things are reversed. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, what does that really mean? I guess it says that he's been tested as we are, yet without sin. Uh, yeah, that should give us a lot of um, hope. I see so many people who, myself included, who just feel so far from grace and so beyond um, receiving what we've been promised, and yet, really, this is a passage we should remember more often, I think, that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Yeah, and so often we fight about inerrancy or infallibility or this or that about Scripture. And we have interviews for university positions, right, or pastoral positions. And they ask you what you believe about Scripture. And what they're really asking you, are you dispensational? Or what do you believe about women in ministry? Or what do you believe? I had a friend who was did a PhD with Stanley Harawas years ago. And then his first job interview was in an evangelical school. And they asked him, do you believe in women's ordination? Hmm. He said, believe in it. I've seen it done. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but, but you know, like so often, that's really what we're asking. Yeah, like, yeah. When they say, what do you think about the authority of scripture? I almost just want to say Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. You got this living and active thing with the, with the high priest who suffered with us in our weakness. Then you got it. That's yeah. my view of scripture. That's the, better than inerrancy, I think. Yeah. That requires more of us than inerrancy does. I wouldn't tell you what's right or what's wrong I'm just a singer of songs But I can take you to a city where a man was crucified I can tell you how he lived and I can tell you Speaking of Jesus, let's go to Mark 10, mm. verses 17. Every, every sentence should begin like that. Speaking of Jesus. <laughs> We're going to rename this podcast. Speaking of Jesus. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I know. I'm sure there's one out there called that. So we have Jesus uh, with the rich young ruler who comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, Jesus is taking it back. Why well, you call me good? You know the commandments says he's kept them all and says, you like one thing, sell it all and follow me. And he goes away dismayed. It's very sad. Yeah, it is very sad. My favorite part of this passage is where it says he looked at him and loved him. Hmm, I didn't even notice that. Where does it say that? It, oh, yes, it does say that. Yeah. It's the only account, Aww. version of the account where it says that. Hmm. Of course he did. He's Jesus. <laughs> So, I mean, what do you make of this? It's, on, one, on one level, it's interesting because there's this dynamic of, in the Gospel of Mark, right, where the outsiders generally know more than the insiders. Hmm. And this guy looks like the perfect hmm. uh, outsider on one level, right? And he comes and does all the right thing. And he looks, then he proves himself kind of an insider. Hmm. It, 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 I mean, the it's, last is first and the first is last. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's just so sad because he's so close. And I couldn't help thinking of Job. I love the way that the lectionary actually juxtaposes things and makes you see a passage in a different way because you've read it alongside of another passage. And so it's so much better than proof texting, right? To I th- think so. To like listen for like a harmony, like yeah. a symphony or something. Yeah, like- exactly. And see, oh, okay. Well, so Job was in the same circumstance and. Although he didn't choose to give it all up, it was just taken from him, but also he had great wealth and um, somehow God still used that in his in his life. I dare say he is he entered the kingdom of God in some way or other, whatever that looked like for Job in his time. Um, but this passage always resonates with me. The truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake. And for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, um, houses, brothers and children, sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions. I didn't notice that until I read it today. And in the age to come, eternal life. I think I've always read that because I left my homeland when I was 18 years old. And I did leave father and mother. I didn't have children yet, but I left sisters. Didn't have any brothers to leave, but if I had brothers, I would have been leaving them as well. So I left my house, my sister, my father and Your mother. Your homeland and, also was Australia. Yes. And also I left, yeah, the beaches. I left the good seafood. I left the weather, all the things. Um, and I was doing so for the sake of the good news. And I haven't received a hundredfold in any literal kind of sense in this age. Um and so I was reminded of Job's story there too, that he lost it all. And then, you know, I've heard people say that it actually kind of deconstructs the passage in a way that here we are thinking, oh, it's not all about money. And then God rewards him by giving him all the same stuff right back again, you know. Um, and uh, so, so Job does have it all taken away from him and then gets it all back in the end. But that's not necessarily the case for those who choose to give it up for the sake of the kingdom. Um, so, I don't know. What do you think about that, Scott? My friend Tali and Chavidian wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing, I think, Equals Everything. Mm. And so, you know, the, well, Jesus, if not a rich man, a guy like this can't be in. What, how, how, and, and the fact that if you've left this for the kingdom, N.T. Wright talks about Jesus is the kingdom and the king. I mean, he's the... So even now they have it all because they have Jesus. Mm. So, I mean, Jesus is the, mm. you know, Christ plays in a thousand places kind of thing. Jesus is is that. Yeah. Uh, That's the only answer I've found in the last 20-some years since leaving all of that. Yeah. And then all the things in light of Christ, right? I mean, the things that you, like these moments here that are beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you, you know, and then... There's a commentary. It's actually a guy I know, Andre Reznor. I, know, I don't know him well, but I know him a little bit. He talks about this passage this way. He says, The man's posture and question indicate the kind of humility and seeking that would seem to characterize the ideal disciple. He kneels before him. Good teacher. You know, what must I do? On closer inspection, though, these pious gestures could be a smokescreen for a more selfish concern. The man's posture, Reverend addressed to Jesus in question belie his desire to possess the one thing he had not figured out how to acquire on his own. Being rich and fastidious in keeping the commandments, and a ruler, according to Luke, the man had everything he wanted here and now. But what about later after life? How could he secure his eternal destiny? Be sure that it was as secure as his 401k. (laughs) Jesus was this man's opportunity to take care of his eternal securities. And it appeared to be going well when Jesus couched the capacity to inherit eternal life in terms of keeping the commandments. For if that were the dance, 
Then this man had been practicing the right steps since he was a child. Mm. He had earned eternal life by his lifelong ability to pull up his Torah bootstraps. <laughs> Teacher, I've kept all of them since my youth. Mm. And, and then later he says this man's fatal flaw was that he, what he owned actually, what he thought he owned, but even, but even more how it actually owned him. Oh yeah. Actually, what he thought he owned, rather, but even more how it actually owned him. Mm. So he, so this, you know, it's not so much necessarily the wealth, although wealth often has an easier time owning. You know, although you could be a person not of means and be just as owned by the desire for means. Yes, I think that I remember a woman who was a missionary to people in an impoverished place, and they and she said. Um, just because people are poor doesn't mean they're not materialistic. They still long for those things. And I thought that was really insightful that we all, regardless of where we are, can still put, make that our God, whether we have it or we just long for it. But I, yeah, I wonder if Jesus just knew that that was, that was this guy's particular thing that was going to be his big challenge and if he would have asked a different thing from different people. Yeah, and I think of, uh, I just read an article by my friend Simeon Zoll. We actually talked about it in the Give and Take podcast about Luther's use in, of tradition and theology and saying how for Luther, thing, the essence of something was with how, how you used it. Mm. And the law, he thought, was misused when it was attempt, when, it, when, it, when it, there was an attempt to sort of Mm. build a ladder up yep. up towards God. Mm. And so here, he this guy, he, he isn't lost by breaking the rules. He's lost by keeping the mm. rules. Mm. And so the, the one thing he could, it's interesting, the one thing he doesn't do is ask for mercy or say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right, right. He's not like the Syrophoenician woman. He's not like... He doesn't express a need for God because he's already got all the basis covered. Right, right. He's kind of like, look, I'm going to make a deal here. I'm the best deal maker i mean that kind of thing like and so like and yet jesus isn't isn't judgmental no i love his response he gives him an opportunity still yeah. to show his need for god it's, it's interesting there's a tradition it's a Zacchaeus moment totally and there's this tradition although it's a tradition we don't know but you know at the end in the passion story in mark there's this naked man following jesus hmm. like the night before the crucifixion, mm -hmm. when he's arrested, right, there's this one naked following hmm. him. And the tradition is that's... That's him. John Mark. Hmm. And that John Mark is the rich young ruler. Wow. So if that's not true, oh, it should bless. be. And, and then you have the sense that, like, the... It, it, they're both naked. I mean, John Mark, if that's him, would be naked. Mm -hmm. And Jesus would be naked the next day. Yeah, shame. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Many thanks for spending some time talking about this yeah. text with me. Of all places, never sat in a bar and talked about the Bible before. Well, I hope you. you that should, should probably be something I do more often. You're very good at it, so you should. <laughs> thanks so much. It was good to be with you. Always. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or Pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Mandy for coming on the podcast. And thanks to you again for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.